Hello, everyone, and welcome to WhatsApp, a space for progressive Asian American voices. I'm your co-host, Arbor Kachapum, alongside Ji Young Park. Welcome to episode two. Uh, today, here's WhatsApp, becoming an activist. Um, so it's my great pleasure to introduce uh, Claire Lau. Um, who is the co-founder of uh, SF Bernicrats and um, so much more. I'm very excited to have her on board because of the work that she's done in the progressive community in San Francisco. We did have an icebreaker question similar to last uh, episode. Uh, what is your favorite food from the culture you, you identify with? And you can also talk a little bit about your um, kind of uh, background if you'd like here too. So this is actually a very difficult question for me because I love food and I'd say I, I identify with multiple cultures because um, I was actually born in France and I lived there until I was seven. And then I grew up in Hong Kong for the rest of, uh, you know, until I was 18. Um, and so, and I love eating. <laughs> so there are lots of foods that I love, but I would say for French, um, Almond croissants definitely like have those cravings. And then for Hong Kong, you know, foods, I think that radish cakes are one of the things I crave. And I've tried to make my own because um, it takes forever. But uh, it's also like I'm not always happy with the way that it's made. And it's harder to find like good quality ones. Um and of course, I love dim sum too, all sorts of dim sum. But um, yeah, I'll go with radish cake, which is actually uh, a uh, specialty during the Lunar New Year. Um, and so that's usually when you are able to get radish cake. And it's like a three hour process because you have to like cook it and then steam it. I love radish cake, but I can never have it because it usually has pork. And so if there are any places that have radish cake without pork, I would love to know where that is. <laughs> Which is actually one of the reasons, like I, I do eat pork, but um, one of the reasons I tr started making my own is that I can choose exactly what I put in it. Um, and my husband doesn't really like uh, dried stuff because usually it's got like dried sausage and dried shrimp and dried scallops um, and he doesn't like that stuff so I would make it from scratch and like use other fresh ingredients awesome and like fresh shiitake mushrooms and sounds amazing so I'm just wondering what SF Bernie Kratz is sure so um the SF Bernie Kratz uh, was founded right after the June 2016 primary in California. I co-founded the San Francisco Bernie Kratz. I think July of 2016 was when we had our first meeting drafting our bylaws. And then the next meeting, we voted on our name. <laughs> and the, the name was democratically voted on. And so the idea was, you know, elections, you know, this election has ended, but um, there's more organizing to do. Um, we need to continue the movement. We need to plug into uh, local politics, understand what's going on locally. 
Um, we need to be building coalitions because uh, in 2016, well, I felt like, you know, there was this Bernie bro sort of narrative of like, you know, the movement being led by white guys, um, which I think was an exaggeration, not that they didn't exist at all, but, you know, the, the movement was uh, more diverse than than what the Democratic Party would uh you know, make it seem like. But at the same time, there's a lot more work to be done to reach out to different communities of color. Um, and so this was, you know, I thought a, a great opportunity to start building coalition. So that's why I co-founded the San Francisco Bernie Kratz. Um, and that led to a lot more other things. <laughs> what motivated you to even start in the first place? Yeah, so I had always been... Um, politically aware. Um, so my parents um, had brought me to protests and I, since I was very young. Um, I actually went to my first march uh, before I turned one year old. Um, that was in uh, 1989, the Tiananmen Square Massacre. Um, and my parents actually brought me to a march. I, I don't remember it at all, but my dad keeps telling me the story. Um, and uh, when we moved back to Hong Kong, um, we would attend yearly vigils um, in commemoration of the Tiananmen Square Massacre, uh, which is, you know, the only place in, you could say, Chinese soil where that is a gathering like that is legal. Um uh, in China, you know, it's very much censored. Any mention of Tiananmen Square is censored. Um, and so I kind of grew up um, being more or less politically aware. Um, in middle school, I think, was when um, the war with Iraq began, uh, or, you know, the U.S. was threatening to go to war with Iraq. And I actually started... Um, writing a letter from my middle school um, uh, to the Bush administration. And I had the idea to talk to a friend and then a bunch of people wanted to get in on it. Um, and I think we ended up writing a pretty bad letter because each person wrote a paragraph and it was like not a very well-written letter. But we wrote it like kind of on behalf of the class to and sent it to the White House. We never heard a response um, against the war in Iraq. Um, and then... At the same time, I became a lot more uh, acutely aware of the environmental degradation that was happening around me. Um, the air pollution was horrible in Hong Kong, um, mostly from like you know in industries blowing uh, the air down to you know from from southern China down to Hong Kong, um, and uh, I just witnessed myself. Um, forested hills uh, near my neighborhood being completely cut down uh, so that highways could be built. Um, and so that was just like a very personal experience. Like I would, you know, be standing next to the woods waiting for the bus. And then a few years later, like the, that entire area was just gone um, and it was all concrete. Um, and so I think that made me uh, aware of you know, the human impact on the environment. And so I started actually doing artwork about that theme, you know, about environmentalism, like my um, high school uh, art show theme was about, you know, environmentalism. Um, 
And then my when I I went to uh, Massachusetts for college, uh, my first spring break, um, I went with my then boyfriend, now husband, uh, traveled down to D.C. to march against the war in Iraq because it was still going on then. Um, And so I'd been more of like a, you know, participant um, and definitely had political views. Um, But it wasn't until, uh, you know, Bernie's run in 2015 that I started like actually organizing things. Um, And that kind of like one thing led to another and it pulled me deeper and deeper into politics. So I actually started by organizing or co-organizing these disco dance parties called Burn Baby Burn uh, with my husband, who was DJing at the time. Um, There was very little going on in San Francisco, and we wanted to get people excited about Bernie. Uh, And so the first time we organized Burn Baby Burn, uh, we thought there may be like 50 people who would show up, but we ended up having four or 500 people show up with lines around the block. So we ended up uh, organizing them once a month and then later on uh, twice a month. Um, And I started uh, signing people up to phone bank uh, later when the campaign finally came to California, um, started tabling and uh, organizing canvases in my neighborhood. And we met so many uh, wonderful people who were working really, really hard on the Bernie campaign. And after he lost uh, the California primary, I thought that it would be such a shame to just let all of this energy disintegrate and go to waste. Um, And that's when I had the idea of uh, forming the San Francisco Burning Crafts to continue the organizing locally. Um, And so after I I formed the SF Burning Crafts, I started going to lots of different like political club events, um, meeting different people. And um, Jane Kim actually, in twenty summer of 2017, invited me to uh, work in her legislative office as a legislative aide f- during the summer while um, her chief of staff was taking a break. Um, and so um, I worked there for two months. I decided at that time that it wasn't really a lifestyle for me because it's <laughs> you just work constantly, you know, there's no real break. And I was like, I I still like to be doing my art. I'd been teaching and, um, and working on my art for many years by then. Um, and I was like, I, I think I still want to go back to that. But then uh, by the end of that year, San Francisco late mayor, Ed Lee passed away and uh, Jane decided to run for mayor. Um, so I became like the first hire onto her campaign, um, worked on her campaign uh, for the the June election. And then I became the campaign manager for a local supervisor candidate in San Francisco, Tony Kelly. Um, And then after that, I was like, okay, this is, this has been a grueling year. 2018 was so grueling. I got to take a break. I, you know, took a long break, traveled with to Europe with my husband, you know, um, got unplugged a little bit, went back to teaching and art. And then lo and behold, like, I think three months later, Bernie announced he was running again. (laughs) And I was at first like trying to, 
I didn't want to work on the campaign because uh, I was like, I still need a break from from working on campaigns. Um, and Jane had been asking me like whether I wanted to work on the campaign. Um, but in the end, there were two people who really influenced my decision to work on the campaign. Uh, one was my mother, who in 2016... Actually, you know, my parents still live in Hong Kong and she was like, well, you know, Hillary Clinton uh, has more international experience and they don't really, you know, follow U.S. politics very closely. So they're like, oh, we see her on on TV all the time. You know, she's has a lot of international experience. Um, But by 2019, my mom was like oh my goodness, like I've seen how destructive Trump is to this world, like this entire world. Um, We have to have a world leader that, you know, puts us on the right path uh, and sets an example. Um, And so my mom was like, if you work on the Bernie campaign, that's not only a contribution to, you know, uh, the, the U.S., but it's also a contribution to the entire existence existence of this planet and this world um and then so that was like (laughs) you know heavy and then the other person was a, a union organizer who basically was like you know claire you've been doing this work like if you don't do this work and they happen to hire some white dude who doesn't know what he's doing (laughs) you're gonna end up like picking up the slack and doing the work anyway and you're gonna be frustrated and you're gonna work you know twice as hard to compensate and you're not gonna get paid for it so you should really just work on the campaign (laughs) um and so that's some really good advice (laughs) I love that and and she was like you know women of color often do the work, but don't get credited for it, you know? And so she's like, if you're going to do the work, you might as well get paid for it and actually, you know, do it in an official capacity. Um, so, so I was like, okay, uh, I'll do it. <laughs> so I joined. So yeah, then I joined the Bernie 2020 campaign in the summer of 2019 um, and acted first as the Bay Area field director and then got promoted to Bay Area director and then got after we won California, got redeployed to New York um, for to be the deputy state director for New York. But that lasted about a month before the campaign had to fold. What we all have in common is that we all worked on the Bernie campaign this this last go round. To Ji Young's point, um, Bernie definitely had uh, a good impact, and um, and so yeah, hopefully he inspires other uh, people of all you know, types of uh, political interest to really stand up. I mean, it's it's kind of funny because even right now, Trump himself is saying Republicans need to pass this $2,000 thing. And you have people like Mitch McConnell that are still pushing against this. Any thoughts about that? <laughs> oh, I think it's great to see, you know, what people consider the far left and far right you know, working together on the same issue, right. which I think is, is is a false binary. Like, I don't think it's things are a left-right continuum. I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But it's great to see, you know, what people think are the polar opposite. You know, Bernie Sanders, the squad, working with Trump uh, to get $2,000 checks to everyone. 
Yeah, I mean, uh, to your point, Duclair, that's so true about like the left and right continuum uh, being a false dichotomy, because um, I would say and argue strongly that in San Francisco, yeah, the left here, like the, the establishment left pretty much acts like Republicans uh, in terms of not their progressive values, um, but like in terms of like and when I say progressive values, I'm talking about like, you know, LGBTQ and et cetera. Well, I'm talking about like when it comes to um, nimbiness, uh, houselessness and all that stuff, like they yeah. basically all side with the developers and tech industry. Right. I mean, I don't know. I don't want to, yeah, I mean, yeah. San Francisco is like socially very liberal, but when it actually comes to economic policies or policies that affect money, um, <laughs> then, you know, you, you can see that, that there's still like a very stark difference. And actually, you know, even the NIMBY YIMBY conversation, I feel like can be a false dichotomy too. Mm-hmm, I, f- mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, just... Because one side is saying, no, don't build. We like to preserve the character. And then the other side is saying, like, yes, build, 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 you know, deregulate. It's like, no, 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 hold on a second. <laughs> like, we can solve this problem by building, but being conscious of what we're building and actually serve, you know, the underserved populations and not building more for, you know, luxury developers, you know. So, yeah. And I think, Jian, you might ha- uh, have some. Uh, uh, history with this or experience because that YIMBY, NIMBY, like yes, my backyard, not my backyard discussion um, really blew up in uh, K Town in you know Los Angeles where the the people um, like realized uh, the residents there overnight that they were building a uh, like a homeless shelter there and people like um, like community members were up in arms and I think the whole argument there was that we weren't um, solicited. Uh, about this placement. And so, I mean, I, I think, yeah, it's definitely, um, to Claire's point, the, the need to include the community <laughs> rather than just go in uh, with guns ablazing and like, you know, we're going to develop, develop, develop. Um, it's, we, we, we have to be intentional about everything. We have, you know, we, the, the world is, the, there's climate change, uh, so much houselessness. From this point on, we have to be intentional about housing people, about changing our our ways so that, that the environment isn't impacted in the way it is. Um, and being intentional requires everyone to be on the same page. Uh, it shouldn't be like a dichotomy. Um, yeah, and I, I think the other point of the dichotomy, too, is that, unfortunately, I'm going to use Bernie Sanders' quote here with the 1%. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I think the 1% get a lot more weight um, because of either lobbyists or whatever, um, or, or even media. I mean, honestly, um, a lot of times local media... <laughs> really favors i want to say like quote unquote establishment narratives much more than um our kind of progressive uh, agenda and voices oh, to yeah. include others so i don't know if you san agree. francisco is definitely like that you know the yes of chronicle likes to often side with the establishment so. i mean la times too and I, i'm but i'm also thinking in terms of um like the native language newspapers. And um, that's one thing I've noticed a lot um, with slander and, um, but I don't know. Oh, there's a lot of people get their, a lot of non-English speakers get their news from 
alternative news sources like YouTube uh-huh. and um, or WhatsApp. Yeah. And Kakao Talk for Koreans. And it's like, there's a lot of misinformation out there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. I mean, go ahead. With, with Chinese media in the Bay Area, mm-hmm. I think that they're... Uh, I think it's it's a little bit more complex, mm-hmm. although um, in general, I think there is, you know, a tendency to side, side with the establishment. But I think more than anything else, they want to see that you're actually reaching out to the Chinese community um, before they report on you. So, you know, in the campaigns that I've worked on, when I have been actively early reaching out to the Chinese media publications, you know, Tsingtao World Journal, mm-hmm. um, they tend to report on our things. You know, when I, I place ads with them, they're like, oh, you actually want to reach out to our community, you know, so they also tend to then, you know, cover our things more. And so I think it's a, a more uh, long-term relationship uh, and actually something that I think progressives need to do more is, mm-hmm. you know, build the, the connections, uh, reach out to the community, uh, build that relationship earlier on and not just wait until like last minute, you know, <laughs> ballots drop, you know, in a few weeks. Oh, crap, we don't have the Chinese vote, you know, because the Chinese vote in San Francisco is like 30 percent of the population. So if you want to win, you really have to reach out um, to the Chinese voters. Um, and, and that requires work. I'm, I, you know, I'm struggling actually right now to reach out to the Chinese voters in my assembly district um, where I'm running as an assembly district delegate um, for the Democratic Party. And I'm trying to get uh, an organization to translate. And I'm, I'm actually having a hard time um, identifying one. Well, we should talk. Okay. (laughs) Let's let's do that. Let's do that. But yeah, like mm -hmm. starting with, you know, language materials. And that's the tricky thing about the API vote, too, is that there are so many languages. Mm -hmm. So if you want to reach out comprehensively to the API community, especially in a place like L.A., where, you know, there are so many different groups like San Francisco proper itself. It's mostly Chinese. But, you know, there are other groups, too. But L.A. is like, you know. They're, they're, it's much more diverse in terms of like the language uh, needs there. So, you know, you, you got to translate and then you, you have to be culturally competent. You can't just <laughs> write something in English and translate it into another language and expect it to work well. Cause I've seen other campaigns do that and it doesn't work well. <laughs> um, so you need to like find people who know the community to help you write, you know, the platform and think about how to message. Not so, only that, the the application the re- application to request a mail in val- ballot is only in English. So even if we get the message out about this election, we still need people to help non English speakers to actually f- request the mail in ballot and fill out the ballot. Yeah. It's pretty insane. This is for the yeah. ADEM election, right? The- Correct. Yeah, the Democratic Party needs to really improve on language access. I mean, yeah. I would actually even argue, Claire, that part of this is intentional <laughs> to uh, maybe 
keep people, um, I, I don't want to say they're malicious, but I mean, considering what happened to Bernie. There's also a lot of incompetence. <laughs> I would, well, yeah, there's like definitely, there could be a lot of improvement to actually make the Democratic Party dem more democratic. Uh, and yeah, I, I think engaging people uh, early on uh, is a surefire way to make sure that people uh, are included in the communities that we uh, reach out to. So. Yeah. yeah. And I'll just say, mm -hmm. you know, when we engage, we also, uh, to Jiyoung's point, like have to be very intentional in how mm -hmm. we engage. Because I know, like, I've actually been recently in discussions with leftists here who are, they have a, a certain worldview mm. and they have a hard time, you know, being in other people's shoes. And so for a lot of, uh, you know, API folks, especially like first generation immigrants, they tend to be uh, culturally a lot more conservative. And so they fall very easily to, to the more conservative tendencies and narratives. And there are some, you know, more prominent figures that are more conservative and they tend to be swayed that way. And when leftists, you know, enter into that conversation, um, we have to be cognizant of the background they are coming from. Like if you talk about healthcare, I would venture to say that most API folks support government run healthcare system for everyone. But if you're like socialism, communism, blah, blah, you know, they're going to be scared and mm -hmm. they're not going to listen to you. Um, and so we have to be, uh, intentional when we discuss the issues and, and really like stick to the issues and talk about the, them in a way that the community will understand and, and you know come to our side. That's absolutely right. I mean, we can see that the messaging is so critical and has to be tailored to each specific community, not just AAPIs, but absolutely. each community, each A each different AAPI community. Mm -hmm. um, and yes, actually, there has been a study done which did find that amongst AAPIs, uh, most, most AAPIs do want universal health care. Mm -hmm. And education, you know. I think that, was, that was second, yeah. yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, definitely I think um, one, one important thing in, in terms of intention is um, for any community that we talk about is, um, and Ji-young, you talked about this in the last episode, how do we um, distill it so that, you know, this these are the policies that work best for everybody, not just the 1% or not just the elite um, people with lobbyists. I mean, ultimately, I think people mm -hmm. want to know how it affects them. Right. So when you bring it home, like... Yeah you know, when, when you can connect with their personal experience of healthcare, of education, or of losing a home, like, then you can really, you know, attach that to the policy. And then once you are in agreement with the policy, then you can say, well, this is the candidate that is pushing for this policy. But if you go in, <laughs> you know, with a candidate, then it's just becomes like personality contests, yeah. you know, and, and yeah. people really don't like that for the most part. Yep. 100%. And I think that's where candidates, I mean, establishment candidates kind of shine because they can kind of polish up whatever um, personality that they want to share. Um, and, and 
Buttigieg is a concert pianist. I don't care. <laughs> I play the piano. You know, I love music. I don't care that my president is a concert pianist. You know, like that's that's a whole other issue. But I mean, it, it really comes down to um, like yeah, subs, substance and policies that affect people. I think so. Yeah, I mean, you know, Bernie Sanders was just another is just another old white man. Um, <laughs> True. You know, so. So the only way that people could get on board was to talk about his policies. Otherwise, why, why, why does anybody else, why does anybody want another, yet another really old white man? Um, (laughs) um, But yeah, again, like when I was canvassing, there were people who didn't know who Bernie was. Um, and when I went to their door, they literally did not know the other candidates. And I, t- I asked them to vote for Bernie and they voted for Bernie. This is in 2020, right? Yeah. Okay. In San Francisco, the uh, Chinese neighborhoods all went for Bernie. Like That's... Sunset, Richmond, Chinatown. I mean, it, it took work to mm-hmm. get there. Like we, we canvassed those areas heavily. We, I, I think we were the first campaign to have materials in all these languages and actually help lead the, the translation um, for Chinese and um, and worked with Jane on some other API languages. Um, but yeah. Can I say a quick follow-up to that um, in the sense that uh, when I was following closely Jane Kim's uh, mayoral election, it was the opposite, right? I mean, I felt like the Chinese community went not for Jane at all in um, the uh, you know her mayoral campaign, but that kind of was really similar to what happened in California in 2016 uh, with Bernie Sanders and California in 2020. Uh, in but I don't know. Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's a little different because I think in 2016 the campaign just didn't do any outreach to <laughs> the API and like the, in 2016 the campaign had no materials in any API languages like all the stuff that I came across were, were self-produced oh, yeah, like it right. wasn't yeah. official campaign materials but 2020 like the official campaign actually printed you know like we made sure that the, the official campaign reached out had materials in, in different languages um but in, I think with Jane, it was mm-hmm. more of the slander from the Senate race, the, the residue from, from that. And it's not that the Jane hasn't been building a relationship with the Chinese community. She has a really long history mm-hmm. of, you know, being involved in the Chinese community and her campaign definitely reached out. Um, I see. And she had some support, too. She won uh, won the Richmond. You know, there, there are areas yeah, where, yeah, yeah. where she won, but um, the you know, there was just some really nasty, sexist, slander, fabricated, you know, personal slander yeah. that happened in in, uh, in her state Senate race that was really just unfair. Yeah. Um, and that was translated, I believe, too. Um, that was just released in Chinese media. It was yeah. people in the, the English speaking world didn't even know about it until much later because mm-hmm. it was fabricated to be spread among, you know, the Chinese community. So what does SF Bernie Kratz do now? Right now, um, we have a range of things. Uh, we, you know, currently folks are busy with the ADAM elections. Um, you know, 
that you're running for here in San Francisco. You know, we have some members who are running. Um, so people are organizing for that. Um, uh, let's see. Um, people are getting excited about Delaney Easton's run for party chair. And then um, we have a healthcare committee. Um, I've been actually wanting to work in coalition with uh, API organizations to reach out more to the Chinese and API community in San Francisco, um, particularly around the issues of safety, because that is one of the uh, issue of highest concerns in San Francisco within the API community. And I think that, again, <laughs> there's a bit of a false dichotomy here too, where, you know, uh, leftists are like, oh, you know, anyone who is concerned about safety is just like upholding the, the police, you know, <laughs> state and, you know, the criminal justice system. And then, um, and then of course they're actually the people who are, uh, you know, who, who want increased police presence. And, um, so we, we have to basically figure out how do we, make the community safer without increasing policing um, because, you know, uh, crime has, there's a lot to the root cause of crime. And of course it's not going to be able solved like overnight. Um, but how do we engage the community in that conversation? And how do we also show we care um, about the community? Cause a lot of the Chinese community, there have been some like high profile uh, assaults um, on elderly Chinese people in San Francisco. And, you know, it's really shocked the community. And so how do we, you know, show that we actually care about them and, and you know, we want to do something uh, for the well-being of the community and not just say like, you know, because we, we can try to build a stronger community without increasing policing. Um, so, you know, just want to, I've been interested in in getting more engaged in those efforts. So that I, oh. Funny that you say that because I actually recently was on a neighborhood call that a neighborhood council member organized, and she invited the police, but no organizations, no um, no like housing organizations. And so I called her out for that and said, why, why are we only talking to the police here? Uh, and I, but I also felt really bad for the people whose homes were being broken into or, you know, had stuff stolen from their garages, their mail stolen. Um, but it, I, I, I really didn't know where to direct these people um, other than this one directory of services. But I there should be more local services to prevent the crime, I think. Um, and so, yeah, and I to support victims and to support victims. And I and I challenged these people to, to spend as much time um, talking to their, talking to their leaders, you know, council, council members and the mayor's office to talk about these 
the root causes of 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 this small property crime um, to cancel rent, um, et cetera, as and uh, as much as they're spending time complaining about all this stuff. So yeah, it's really a struggle. This like transition time um, between like calling for defunding and then actually creating the infrastructure for alternatives to policing. Yeah. One thing I just wanted to add um, is uh, another personal plug for myself is that I did work on the um, hate crime map, which also helped to map um, AAPI crimes um, during COVID um, to really bring to forefront that um, a lot of racism is occurring um, due to COVID-19 as well. Um, So that's something that um, it's not necessarily property per se, um, but it is definitely um, crimes um, that are very, very disturbing. I would say even more disturbing. I mean, yeah, property, losing property is important. Like, you know, you have to survive, but I would say like the emotional damage being done to people um, of like, you know, in our communities um and part of the discussion that i've been having with folks too is um you know there there has been a lot of hate crime um and some people are saying well you know actually if you look at hate crime statistics you know it's not hasn't necessarily gone up it within san francisco (laughs) it has gone up like elsewhere i know for a fact but Mm -hmm. in san francisco it hasn't necessarily gone up but then when you look at hate crime, hate crime is like a very narrow, has a very narrow definition. Yes, and yep. what we found in San Francisco is that there have been, uh, uh, you know, elderly API folks who've been targeted not for hate crime, but they've just been, you know, like I, I think a, two years ago, there was a, you know, 80 something year old grandma who was like beaten to a pulp and found next to a trash can by her family who, you know, after she disappeared for a while um, and she was robbed, like, you know, her, all of her um, valuables were gone. So it's not necessarily a hate crime, but it was like horrible because she was found like unconscious, Mm -hmm. you know, with her face covered in blood, you know, and, and that was really shocking to the community. Um, and so, you know, there's like hate crime and there's uh, just being targets of, of right. crime in general. Yeah, but uh, these particular ones are literally like, go back to China, you gave us the flu or this thing. It's it's These are like very, um, and, and these people aren't even Chinese, like they get reports. Oh, yeah. um, and so yeah. my incident is on there. Oh yes, that's right, Jiang. Yeah. I would say that um, the the main point of that kind of uh, endeavor is to say that one hate crime is too many, uh, in yep. a sense that you know we should not be in a society that allows any of this to occur. Yeah. So I mean that that's a different issue. Um, but I I did want to flag that as another kind of like um crime that should also be part of like protecting the people. (laughs) Um, So anyways, um, probably jump down to the question now of how do you avoid burning out with your levels of activism and how do you sustain that? Yeah, Um, it's hard. (laughs) I won't lie. Um, I've definitely like, you know, taken breaks after campaigns just because it's so grueling and exhausting and you're working like 80, 100 hours a week and you don't have time to exercise or like, you know, cook yourself a nice meal. And so I, I definitely like, you know, take some time off usually after 
really intense long periods of campaigning. But then I think in general, you know, just being, first of all, setting boundaries. Um, Like after working on multiple campaigns now, I will go into a campaign setting better boundaries uh, for myself and like knowing, you know, that it's okay to to ask for a day off or take some time off to take care of yourself because if you're not in good mental or spiritual or physical health, <laughs> then you're not going to do a good job, you know? Um, and so, uh, you know, it, it, I'm like kind of a, you know, very hardworking person. Um, and sometimes it's a curse because I feel guilty for taking time off if other people are working. Um but you just have to not do that. <laughs> like you have to, you know, understand. Like it's okay to to take time off for yourself, for for your own personal, mental, and physical health. And then acknowledging that you can't do everything. And this is something that I have had a hard time dealing with my entire life. Is I always want to do everything, and you just physically can't. And so figuring out where you can have the most impact where you can make the most impact like you know there are so many things that we all care about so many issues to get involved with like where can i make the most impact and which is why i'm like interested in organizing you know doing progressive outreach to the chinese community because i feel like they're you know only so many people who who are in a position to do that um and it's work that really needs to be done so um and, you know, there's other things like, you know, the ADEM elections where I feel like a lot of people can get involved in that. And, and there are other people doing that outreach. And um, but, you know, for reaching to the API community as a progressive, I feel like that work hasn't been done enough. Um, so, you know, so so figuring out like where you can make the most impact um, and just, you know, um, Figuring out what makes you happy, too, um, because uh, if you enjoy the work, then you're going to be able to sustain and keep doing it um, and avoid burnout. Um, mm-hmm. Because sometimes there's work that you're good at <laughs> that you don't necessarily like, and there's work <laughs> that <laughs> that you know actually brings you fulfillment. Right. Um, uh, and so it's important to, to do the work that brings you fulfillment. Uh, and it's hard, like, because mm-hmm. in progressive politics and organizing, like, you deal with people and people can be nasty to each other oh. sometimes, you know. Sometimes? Um, <laughs> a lot of times. And so navigating yeah. through the drama and all of that, like, it's hard. Yeah, and I know Jiang has, uh, is probably going to have a lot to say about that. But I, w- I will say that, um, Claire, that what you've just mentioned in terms of, you know, um, doing what makes you happy and not trying to force yourself into situations where, um, you know, you don't take breaks for your mental health and your own physical well-being. I think those are general life advice that is is very important. I mean, honestly, I'm just thinking it applies to my work uh, at, you know, UCLA. Um, It also applies to anything that you, like, really will do as an activist. So, um, yeah, thanks for bringing that up. And actually, one more thing I'll add that that I've kind of come to discover through, well, the Bernie campaign um, 
is if you are in a leadership position, mm-hmm. you have the power to set the tone oh. of the space that you're running. And I was very intentional um, by the time I got to the burning campaign, because I, you know, you know or, organizing this, burning craft spaces, working on other campaigns, I was very intentional in creating a very positive, collaborative, inclusive space that really welcomed feedback and that valued each individual that, you know, came to the space and not just saw them as like workers to produce mm-hmm. calls and numbers. Right. Um, and so, you know, if you get to a position where you're, you know, taking, you're leading a group, a meeting, you know, it's really important to set the right tone, the positive tone that enables the community to continue building. Yeah. And I will totally echo that because um, I've, known uh rapi castillo he's uh worked on aoc's campaign alexander um, ocaso cortez in new york as the tech person there and he basically said that same thing claire that her campaign was welcoming open to all like you know each volunteer using their own skills really drive the um, the whole election for her forward and so um i i think that's really a key for the grassroots but that's just my personal perspective. <laughs> yeah, and I, I I totally echo um, the sentiments you you both are expressing. I'm seeing um, in various spaces, uh, in workplaces and in nonprofits, that some of them are very top down. Oh, yeah. Um, yep. They. And it really inhibits growth. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it inhibits the ability to serve uh, appropriately and um, maximizing the ser- the potential of 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 the services. And so, yeah, it's it it and really the things that we have to do require so much creativity, imagination, and really a change from what we have been doing that it's, we can't dismiss what the older generations have contributed and what they know, but we have to create room for younger folks who have new ideas because we need them. Yeah, like absolutely. like status quo, what we've done in the past, it's it's over. <laughs> you know, like we have to pave a new path. And there are just a lot of people it, you know, in in even nonprofit spaces that really resist giving up that that kind of clout and power. Mm-hmm. And it it's 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 really unfortunate. Yeah. Could not agree more. <laughs> I mean, that's why I think, Claire, as a leadership position that you've played on the campaign, I think that's why I've said in the past that, you know, you, you do have that um, kind of openness that does like <laughs> I wasn't even on the 2020 campaign. And you just mentioned the I think core principles of being a good leader. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting because like 
people think of leadership like oh whoever is like speaks the loudest mm-hmm. you know is like a strong you know <laughs> like make decisions um unwavering whatever yeah. but i found that you know a good leader really needs to be a good listener and and needs to bring people together you know and um unfortunately there are I feel like there aren't enough, you know, mm-hmm. spaces where that kind of leadership uh, is happening right now. It goes to Gian's uh, point of power. Go ahead, Gian. Well, yeah, and and you know, in our own cultures, at least speaking for Korean American Korean culture, you really have to defer to your elders and and even to men. Yep. And so the kinds of spaces that we actually need are are new kinds of spaces mm-hmm. and new kinds of dynamics. Um, and I love seeing them come into fruition. So I, I love it so much. And, you know, like I think when I was younger, I did I like flouted patriarchy and <laughs> and and like ageism and all that kind of stuff like just out of rebellion Mm -hmm. but now now I just see how necessary it all is and 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 people are actually interacting in new ways that are are very inspiring and and hopeful for me yeah no I think um similar for more most aapi communities we have that um those old culture and i think claire you talked to you touched upon it when you said like you know if we if you mention a word like socialism or communism people are like what are you saying like in in these communities and it's it's really how do you break down those kind of barriers of um kind of resistance to make those changes to the patriarchy and um just you know these i would say systems of power and oppression almost like i mean it's it echoes the whole black lives matter movement of like you know these are ingrained culturally for one reason or another and you know how do we identify and how do we move past them is kind of our job as progressives i think (laughs) so yeah um i'd like to know though as somebody who has struggled with setting boundaries what specific boundaries did you set That's when a good you were going point. into <laughs> your last campaign i will say that i i had a hard time during the burning campaign i was just working nonstop. um i i after the burning campaign I actually worked on the no on prop 22 campaign which was um uh, fighting Uber and Lyft's ballot measure to basically undermine uh, workers' rights, uh, um, employee rights. And so going into that one, I was like, okay, I am actually going to take weekends off. You know, I'm going to figure out like where I need to put my efforts into. And it was a little different. Like with, with the Bernie campaign, I because I was in a leadership position, it was harder to to let go. Um, I, I shouldn't say to let go. I should say like I felt like the responsibility in ensuring that everything was was happening. And and I was also seeing my team 
you know, work their asses off and, um, and, uh, not, you know, not that I was like making them, I was actually constantly reminding them to take breaks and go to bed and figuring out ways to get, you know, volunteers to do the work that, you know, that they would otherwise be doing. Um, but just recognizing that like, okay, I, I really need to just like go eat right now. Like not, you know, this is not super urgent. I can go take a break, go eat. And then, yeah, by, by the time I was on the No on Prop 22 campaign, I was definitely like, okay, I'm, I'm taking weekends off. I'm making plans with my husband. You know, I am not, even though there were some present presentations that popped up that, you know, groups were asking the campaign to do, I was like, it's our anniversary. I'm not going to do it. Like there are, you know, two other people who can do it. Like, I don't have to be the person doing this, you know, but just being able to, to also prioritize like family, well-being, all of that. And I think like, if I were ever to get into another campaign, Oh, and I will also say, you know, I'd also try to make sure that my staff had boundaries. Mm. Um, So I, during our, like we had weekly staff meetings um, and during the staff meeting, I wanted to make sure that we went over everyone's schedule for the day off that they would be taking that, that week and make sure that they have like time off. Um, So yeah, that's really important. But I think, you know, in, in the future, if I ever go back to another <laughs> campaign, I think I would go into it being like, okay, I need a day off, you know, a week. Like I, I can't not take a day off. And like during the, the Bernie campaign, because I was considered management, I really like didn't have a day off ever. Um, but I think if I were ever to take another campaign, I would just put that like up front, like I need a day off a week. <laughs> like it's really important for my mental and physical health. I have a question about the about um, what you've been doing. So it sounds like you've been involved a lot in electoralism. Um, and you earlier you spoke about how people best serve progressivism and 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 serving uh, people. So going forward, will you continue to be involved in electoralism um, as opposed to, say, direct action? um, Or will you take a break? Or what are you going to (laughs) do? It's a hard question. I I don't really know exactly. Like, I I never planned to be in politics. You know, I have I since I was in first grade I knew I wanted to be an artist and a teacher and for a really long time I was an artist and a teacher um I I will say you know I I kind of like fall into like electoral politics and I don't really know like in the immediate future I want to try to figure out how to organize you know have progressive outreach to the Chinese community in San Francisco like that's kind of what I'm most interested in right now um i'm also just doing a lot more reading about i feel like i'm in a in a kind of strange space of being a leftist but also having worked on you know been part of democracy movements in hong kong um 
and this weird space of, you know, I support, you know, socialist ideology. And I also feel that democracy is really important. Um, and just kind of reading up and, and because I feel like there's also this tendency in the left to, uh, not be as critical as we should be on some of the um, past communist and socialist regimes um, Mm -hmm. that have happened. And so that's just like, uh, you know, personally, I'm, I'm just wanting to, I have been reading more and, and figuring out how to articulate these things um, and reimagine and actually like, what do we want things to look like as leftists because you know as we talked about this patriarchal top-down system doesn't work and it's Mm -hmm. been most of the regimes we've seen and a lot of the ones that have failed have used this kind of system and i i don't think that that's the way to go um so like how do we you know reimagine um you know, what kind of society we want to create, um, if we were able to, you know, create one. Um, and so, you know, to answer your question in terms of electoral politics, I don't really know. Like, I, I think I have some skills, but thankfully there aren't immediate elections happening in San Francisco (laughs) in the near future. So I'm basically going to like not think about it for a little bit (laughs) and just kind of focus on these other things. Um, I'm very excited about Nina Turner running for Congress. Uh, I'm not going to go to Ohio (laughs) because I don't know anything about Ohio. Um, But, uh, you know, yeah. (laughs) Um, that's so funny that you talk about, um, your, what you're studying right now, because I definitely also kind of have issues with, um, people just looking to European male theorists, um, and and ta- and talking about them as if they have the answers all the answers and it's like no like we have to forge our own like a new a new kind of reality based on the rea- based on like the circumstances that we have now which are very different from from the circumstances that existed then and so i I am more interested in 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 things that like uh, Ruth Wilson Gilmore has to say um, about racial capitalism, um, which I I find to be like um, like critiques, but she also talks about abolition. But like, yeah, I mean. What does a just and an equitable future require? Um, that's not just based on like what dead European white men have said. <laughs> uh, I have two two comments. One, um, I totally agree with uh, both you and Claire on that. Like, we as leftists need to really understand um, critical 
views on how um, the ideal system that we envision looks like um, and who it takes care of and um, all of these um, kind of really important um, social change um, that needs to occur. Um, because like I feel like a lot of times people that are you, you know, doing direct action to support others and things like that, um, they, they may not have that f complete focus of like, okay, where are we trying to get to? Because we're all just trying to patch the leaking boat <laughs> and we're, we don't know where the boat's going, but we're just trying to patch it, right? It's kind of like the $2,000 stimulus thing. We, we don't know, but we just want to make sure that, you know, we can float. Um, so, I mean, Claire, it's very important that I think, you know, one way to to like you're saying is um, to read up on what um, you know different people have said and how do we move from that. Um, and my next question or comment is to Claire actually: What have you been reading, and what do you suggest to people um, if you have, <laughs> if you'd want to? I, I don't really know if I um, have. Uh, you know, a clear like suggestions of a, a reading list yet. Cause I'm, okay. I'm really compiling it myself, but mm -hmm. I, I've been reading more about um, China under Mao um, mm. because, you know, it, it's connected to my family history. Right. Um, and there have, I started reading it mostly because I, I wanted to understand um, I, you know, just from growing up in Hong Kong, I know bits and pieces, but I didn't really have like a comprehensive, detailed understanding of all of the policies and the consequences of all of these different policies. And, you know, I know that in, in the West, there's like these this demonization of Mao, but also then in leftist circles, there is this glorification of Mao. <laughs> yep. And I really yeah. want to understand like exactly you know, what were the policies, what were the consequences of these policies, the intention, intended consequences and unintended consequences. Um, and so um, currently I am reading, let me pull it up, uh, uh, China Under Mao by uh, Andrew Walder. Um, and it just it goes into like a lot of detail into all of the different policies from, you know, land reform in rural areas to urban areas to, you know, the different stages from the initial revolution to the civil war and everything that happened. And there are like lots of misconceptions out there of mm -hmm. what happened. Um, and so it's just been really fascinating for me and just to understand like, you know, where, and, you know, throughout the process, I try to use a critical lens into mm -hmm. seeing like, okay, this is, you know, I agree with this. Okay, this is maybe a little bloodier than I want it to be, but I think that it still kind of achieved the purpose. And then like, oh, here, I think it's like way out of control. Like, you know, we're just extracting false confessions <laughs> through torture and executing people. Like that is, you know, doesn't work, you know. So just really diving in. And, and a lot of the campaigns last only a few years mm -hmm. and you know he had a lot of different policy changes throughout mm. his tenure so you know figuring out like what were all those things and, and you know what were the consequences of each of those 
Yeah, no, that, that's a very good point in terms of trying to figure out what is a story, right? Because a lot of times the history is misconstrued um, and like having that critical lens is very important. And um, I usually teach a workshop at UCLA on critical cartography because um, my background is mapping. And um, the person I teach it with, she's an indigenous um, person. And um, we always talk about how it's not the you know Western-centered um, ideas of knowing that are always correct, and um, they oftentimes invalidate and disempower um, like female voices and voices of color and all these other like um, maybe I would say competing um, ideas of um, knowledge production, and um, these are important ways to really um, talk to people that may not agree. Do you? see any connections in Hong Kong and what's happening here? I actually started seeing connections between uh, the pro-democracy movement in Hong Kong and the Black Lives Matter movement back in 2014. I was seeing a lot of connections with people being on the streets fighting um, a system and structure that is unjust. And, you know, a, a big part even though the protests in Hong Kong started with something different that they were protesting about, very quickly it also became a anti-police violence movement um, because the state uses the police force to reinforce this oppressive system. Um, and the police is designed to just blindly follow these orders. Um, and so, uh, you know, People were out there to protest an unjust system. They were out there to uh, protest police violence. And for the most part, actually, when people were left alone, the, the protests would be really peaceful and positive. Um, but then as soon as, you know, police shows up with riot gear and tear gas, things get messy. Um, and I was seeing like a ton of the parallels uh, and, and just how the police was treating its own people as the enemy. You know, it, it was like really disheartening. And so there was, you know, the first wave in 2014 and then another wave um, in uh, 2020, 2019 to going into 2020. And, and I was just seeing like a lot of connections between what was happening uh, there in Hong Kong and, and here in the U.S. Um, I'm just very saddened by how um, things have developed in Hong Kong uh, recently. Um, and so it gives me less hope um, for Hong Kong. Um, whereas I feel like here, there's still a fight be had <laughs> mm -hmm. um and, and we've seen like shifts in in the conversations um you know this this second wave of black lives matter uh move movements um I, I think we've seen a shift in the national conversation around it so i think that's positive i mean it's it's interesting too because uh in thailand you know both in 2010 um and 
uh, to some extent in 2020, it's the same idea of um, protesters being peacefully protesting. Um, but then the military, because I mean, in Thailand, the ties between the um, the political leaders and the military are like super entwined. That um, peaceful protests being met with um, riot gear police and maybe there is uh, some CIA, whatever stuff going in there in Thailand in particular. Um, but I just definitely feel like, um, regardless, it's it's Thai people in military gear cracking down. Well, with regards to what's happening in Hong Kong, like yeah. uh, sometimes people are like, oh, is, you know, well, actually, the Chinese government says like, oh, these people are on the streets because of, uh, you know, the influence from the West, you know, American <laughs> foreign influence, oh. blah, blah. I'm yeah, like, yeah, 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 yeah. please, they're, you know, of a, a city of, you know, seven and a half million people, two million people were out on the streets. Like mm -hmm. people were there because they wanted to fight for something. They believed in something. Yep. Yep. Um, but then, you know, there's it, it's complicated because I feel <laughs> like um, there's some kind of confusion of democracy that has to be a, a Western mm -hmm influence thing and you know if you are supportive of your original culture you reject that mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and that kind of gets mingled up with capitalism but i think that yeah. those are very se separate and different things you know there's the capitalist economic system and yep. we can yep. be uh critical and reject that system but we can also still fight for democracy as as a governance system mm -hmm. and in hong kong we found that well actually with regards to the u.s we found that the republicans have been much more vocal about the protests in hong kong and kind of co-opting it and using it you know as you know, like Marco Rubio is like, you know, kind of one of the leading figures in mm -hmm. speaking out uh, about, you know, issues in Hong Kong. And we haven't seen the left being as vocal. Yep. Um, yep. And so which is why, like, I, I'm interested in, in exploring this realm, too. Like the left can be fighting against, you know, this capitalist system as well as fighting for democracy. Yeah. That's so interesting that you say that because actually in this country, we've never really had true democracy. Our government is not <laughs> as a true democracy. So this, um, like this fallacy that, that we have a democracy is really about an ideal that we've never achieved mm -hmm. and it's an ideal that everybody wants um regardless of of what country you're in that no country has personally know of has truly um been able to uh, manifest in in their governments so to say that it's an american thing is is really not true it's 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 again it's something that that I think most people want, um, regardless of, of where you are. <laughs> yeah, I, I think when, when I hear that idea, I, I, it's kind of like the, the conflict I usually describe between the individual versus co the collective and how do you balance those two, right? Because, I mean, the other notion of Western ideals and, I, um, you know, philosophy is the individual has, you know, 
total free will basically and the idea of like the collective in like you know what the eastern cultures like yeah Gian shaking her head what <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I it's like the breakdown of the community is so much a part of what what's wrong with with capitalism with um with really like western the western way of living mm-hmm. and i think again going back to like being intentional like we we have to be intentional about um how to build back up mm-hmm. community yeah and that's where i think the word like social really comes into context right where it's about um, our neighbors it's about us as individuals it's about us as the group uh, within that individualism of like you know an aapi a leftist i mean there's all these different groups that we can all fit into and how do we best utilize um you know our our talents and our um, skills to make the changes that we need um yeah (laughs) so i have a question um for like regular folks who have a full-time job and you know maybe have a family how can they be involved in in making change how would you tell them um to get involved i mean there are lots of different ways to get involved I will say that joining an organization is probably, I think, one of the easiest ways because then it's a little less overwhelming. Like the organization will have, you know, its priorities and will tell you how to get involved and what to do. And, you know, now let's do this letter writing campaign or to this, you know, congressperson or um, get involved in this particular issue call these people um if you try to navigate it all yourself and and keep up with it all yourself it can be really overwhelming um so you know joining our organization and there are lots of different organizations out there and i think that there's you know there is an organization for every for for lots of different um issues and and ways to get involved and you know demographics you know like everything from you know sunrise being more youth led uh you know focus on the environment to you know working families party to you know i i can't really name all the organizations mm-hmm. but you know figuring out you know what draws you in um and where your interests are and i think that's like the easiest way to to, to plug in yeah, is there um, a resource or maybe we can compile a resource for listeners to um, really, you know, check in um, locally or, you know, across different, um, maybe even countries? <laughs> yeah, and actually uh-huh. the other thing too is like getting involved locally yeah. usually is you, you will be able to see more immediate impacts yep. when it, you get involved locally. For so. Sure. You know, if there are local organizations to get involved with, you know, I, I definitely encourage that. Um, and, you know, the the uh, decisions that your local elected officials make are likely to have like a really direct impact on mm-hmm. your daily life, um, whereas things on a state or national level are much harder to influence. Um, so, you know, for starters, I, I'd say, you know, try to get involved locally. 
Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the the big question for that is like, how do you find these orgs? I mean, obviously you type in on the search engine and things like that. Um, I'm lucky to have been able to, you know, be at the right space on Twitter. Um, that's how I get connected to people. But any suggestions for those? It's hard to say. <laughs> like, I don't think I have a, I don't have a comprehensive list of every single type of organization. Oh, no, no, no. Know, but yeah. like, you know, if you're like a Bernie person, you know, our evolution mm-hmm. uh it was formed after the 2016 campaign and there are like local chapters of our evolution which of which the sf Kratz is one so you know like if and and we actually sf Kratz was formed before the official national our evolution was formed what? Um, that's but awesome. we are we are like a, you know now a local chapter yeah um so you know if you're in san francisco i'd say you know definitely feel free to join there are other if you go to our our evolutions website there will be listings of all the local chapters um there's also dsa um there's sunrise you know a lot of these organizations are national and then have local chapters um so you know those could be starting points and then there was like down to like neighborhood levels there you know different in San Francisco, different democratic club, like the Richmond district democratic club and blah, blah. But, Mm -hmm. you know, those you're going to have, you might need to do a little more research as to like what their political leanings are because they can vary. Right. Yeah. I mean, those are, that's a, that's a really, um, good way to summarize it so going from the national organizations down to local rather than you know starting away trying to figure out you know by yourself what the local orgs are so thanks claire for plugging that in um okay so just real quick like i literally just had uh, a friend of mine say all these posts about black and brown folks like what about us asians um you know like, why are we always left out of the conversation? What do you what 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 would you say to that? Actually, you know, I, I was thinking about the different roles that a the API community can play, and I wasn't going to mention it because we are already like overly <laughs> over time. Okay, but um, yeah, but you know. I think that, first of all, even though Asians do have a history of discrimination in this country, I would say that, you know, we've faced discrimination in this country um, stemming from, you know, the Chinese Exclusion Act. I think that compared to the Black population, we've people who came here actually decided to come here themselves. And even though the system had been against us, we didn't face the same level of oppression that Africans had faced because they came here and changed. They never wanted to come here. And then the system consistently until this day treated them as, the system just tried to push them down as much as possible. Now, the Asian community in San Francisco organized, you know, over you know, a really long period of time and at this point is able to become like an organizing block. Um, and that that took a lot of work and it was difficult, um, but that block was able to more or less be formed. Of course, it's not, you know, monolithic, um, but the, the system has made it extremely, extremely difficult um, for 
African-Americans to organize throughout history and has con- consistently tried to dismantle any organizing. Um, and I think, and I've actually kind of developed this realization throughout my last few years of organizing that I think Asian Americans are in a unique position where we understand to some extent, I think we have a better understanding of the struggles of communities of color because we kind of experience it, maybe not to the same extent as, you know, black and brown folks. Um, But we do have that understanding of privilege. Mm -hmm. Um, And we are, we have this social position, I guess, for lack of a better word of like being, you know, having some voice in society and, and, you know, being listened to and being more or less respected in, in a certain way that I think we're in a unique position to bridge um, that it's just hard to say bridge the misunderstanding because that's like you know it's a difficult task but you know I I've made attempts and I think I've seen other people may make attempts to you know try to bring both sides to the conversation and help each each other understand each other's perspective um, because I think we're like in this unique position to kind of be able to understand or, or at least, you know, connect to both. That's kind of what happened in LA during the Watts riots, right? A Korean community versus the um, you know, African-American community at the time, they um, were <laughs> coming at it from different angles. Um, but, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, the, the conversation, I think, um, of bringing both groups into the fold underscores that need to like bridge that gap. Do you mean the, the 90? 90- the 92 riots? Yeah, the 92 riots. Yeah. Or, or uprising, I guess. Yeah. Um, up, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I definitely lived through it. And my own parents um, were Republicans because of like all the tax reasons and mm-hmm. whatnot. And Reagan, for whatever reason, was, was very popular amongst um Koreans. Um, and then when the uprising happened and Daryl Gates, the police chief, did not protect K-Town, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, a lot of Koreans en masse became <laughs> Democrats. Um, so, so yeah, I, I, I definitely see, I have definitely seen how Koreans in LA had the realization, oh, we're we're really not treated like white folks are. Um, but then there are, you know, there there are Kore- like this friend of mine is like, my friend's father was killed during that uprising. Like we're we're victims too. Why is all the attention on 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 black and brown folks? Right. I mean, and, and it goes back to Claire's point. Like, I really l- love the notion of the false dichotomy that she mentioned. It's why is it us, not them? That's the the dangers, I think, of um, that kind of just thinking in terms of those 
boxes and not being able to like go beyond that. Um, so, yeah. Well, what I also tried to um, inartfully explain to this friend is that because black folks in this country have been systematically oppressed, if our change, our, our systems are changed so that they are no longer oppressed, then that is naturally going to equalize, or at least not equalize, but, at, you know, make things more fair for everyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I, uh, you know, but, uh, but this was all over text and... <laughs> <laughs> that point didn't get across very well. <laughs> well, at least you mentioned it here. <laughs> One thing I learned from the No I'm Proud 22 campaign is that you can't really just rely on text on really complicated issues. Mm. It's hard. It's really hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because, I mean, honestly, Claire, that campaign had to have been done digitally, right? I mean, yeah. the the COVID we, was... We sent out, like, over... <laughs> 12 million texts but it it was such a complicated issue that i feel like we we just had to have those longer conversations with people yep and the sad thing too is like the people that were you know actually lyft and uber drivers they basically were getting propagandized from their own employers oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) so it was that's like a whole other yeah (laughs) i mean i deleted like lyft from my phone and instacart i was like screw y'all forget you grubhub gone gone like after i couldn't bring myself to ever use any of these apps again yeah so i I I'm I I come from labor. I just um, came out of a six-year stint um, with a, an SEIU local. So you know that is it seven to one? No, I was at one thousand, which is okay. state workers. And um, so yeah, seeing seeing Prop Twenty Two was really a bummer. Yeah, and I mean, that's why I'm so excited in um, the episode with um, Natalie Matsuoka. And uh, Claire, I mentioned to you about this too, um, that we are releasing a report on California Asians and how they voted completely uh, for Prop 22. It was insane. But there was so much disinformation, intentional disinformation. Mm -hmm. And I think as us, like, you know, being here, we, we can help to like fight back but i mean claire you sent how many text messages and <laughs> we basically sent at least one text to every single california voter who had a cell phone in the voter file wow that's I mean, incredible that's amazing but the thing is it's such a complicated issue that and there was so much misinformation that it was really hard to to fight that you know you really need a more in-depth conversation it's not something that you can do you know with a 30 second ad or mm-hmm. you know a, a text or so. like really discussion i mean somewhere in the media yeah. or something well like, and that's yeah. the thing i realized that like it, in san francisco in like downtown downtown la um probably to lost mm-hmm. yeah and it did. In, 
you know, in areas where there was a history of organizing, a lot of discourse, political discourse happening, um, the proposition lost because like, for example, in San Francisco, you know, there are tons of different clubs and the vast, vast majority of the clubs endorsed no on Prop 22 yep. and, and had an explainer in them. And, you know, uh, it lost by, you know, I think o- over 60% of people voted no in San Francisco, but the rest of the state isn't as organized, yeah. um, doesn't have as much or- organizing to, to counter the disinformation. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I, ca- I went to a, like a ton of different presentations, like every mm-hmm. week I would go to speak with multiple organizations um, about Prop 22. And I feel like when they heard me speak, they really understood the issues. But I'd say, I don't know, like 80% of the organizations I spoke to were in San Francisco. I I was going to say that. And how do we get people outside of SF and LA in in the middle of California, right? Like Bakersfield, uh, Fresno, like how do we actually start to help build out the AAPI um, or even just progressive efforts there? Because honestly, it's it's very important that, I mean, what you said, it's like most of our organizations, uh, orga- organizing takes place in these places. And so any thoughts about that? I mean, I think just as with API, the API community, I think mm-hmm. the organizing just has to happen consistently and mm. not only during election cycles. And once you build yeah. the organizations, the relationships, you know, then it becomes a lot easier to, to you know, rally people up during election cycles. But right. if you just go in during the election cycle, then, then it's too late. It's Which is really the case for... Um, for all the mutual aid that's going on right now. Yep. Uh, what do you mean? Yep. Like uh, building those networks, Jiang, or? Yeah, yeah. It's really, I think, the basis of grassroots organizing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, okay. <laughs> uh, we have quite a bit of content. <laughs> um, and yeah, Jiang, would you like to recap the episode a little bit? I think you should do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, yeah. So the, the episode, we really talked about how um, Claire started the SF Bernicrats. Uh, actually, who is the other co-founder? Um, oh, my husband. Because <laughs> we, we had started like the Bird Baby Bird Parties together gotcha. and then we co-founded this of breeding cards he's a bit burnt out so <laughs> i'm more involved than he is these days <laughs> gotcha i actually uh, uh, on the burn baby burn um i was in la at the time so my mom attended a couple of those uh, with her aunt with my, with my aunt um, nice and she did that donate. is so cute <laughs> that is super cute <laughs> so she enjoyed it um and she's like you know in her 60s uh 50s or something um so it was it was good i mean it really was she out on the dance floor yeah yeah yeah. i mean she loves this go and uh, (laughs) that is so cute (laughs) so yeah shout out to the burn baby burn parties that's a that's a really good way to really help get movement started um but yeah so the claire really mentioned um about how you know just to get started with um being an activist and we covered a lot of things regarding um how political movements are structured um and i think the most important thing that we've mentioned too was how to be critical um while also maintaining that um focus 
uh, if you're in a leadership leadership position, allowing um, the people with you to kind of um, grow out their talents in the way that that allows people to just like yeah be themselves and um, um, build on their talents. Um, and we also talked a little bit more on um, just social movements around the world. Um, so Hong Kong was one. Um, you know, how that ties in with Black Lives Matter here in the U.S. We also discussed at length kind of work-life balance, <laughs> making sure you have uh, time to recharge and um, setting boundaries. Yeah, so I think that's more or less the episode. Um, we, we did end up <laughs> going quite a bit longer, which I think is fine. Um, sorry, Claire, if you had other plans. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. Um, but yeah, I, I do want to um, really, really thank you for taking the time to come on because um, yeah, as you can tell, we, we've, we're just starting this uh, podcast, but I think the ability to network and um, kind of get our ideas out there for people to think about and really act upon um, is one reason why um, having you on at this early stage is um, I think really impactful. And um, like I said in the past, um, you have been really inspirational in the work that you've been doing with your activism. So um, even though you may not be doing it now <laughs> and you're reading up on a lot of these great things, but yeah, I, I, I just uh, really glad to have been able to get this opportunity. So yeah. I think I think you got it. It was just uh, really nice to chat with you and meet you. Yeah, it was great meeting you and seeing you both here. And thank <laughs> you for inviting me. Yeah, next week, we're going to have um, Kenneth Mejia come in the show to talk about his running for Los Angeles City Controller. Um, he is a Green Party candidate. Uh, we're going to hear about how um, his um, campaign is going and um, just his thoughts about running as an AAPI person in Los Angeles for City Controller. And if you don't know what a City Controller is, it's basically the person who oversees the budget and um, kind of like uh, accounting for the budget where where what goes where so things like black lives matter trying to figure out you know how much money is actually going to police is um like one of the things that um he's kind of campaigning on and stuff but yeah uh food for thought <laughs> to leave with our listeners i'd say like that things are not you know binary like, I think in politics, we see a lot of, you know, people like to reduce things to a binary, you know, black and white. And a lot of things are more nuanced. Um, so it's important to really dive deep into the issues. That's, yeah, I, I can't stress the importance of that more than like how you said it, because I mean, we'd, we'd get too trapped in that binary thinking that it almost kind of isolates one another. And I mean, I think media is kind of also to blame for that um, in a sense that, you know, if you're not with us, you're against us. Mm -hmm. And that that really is fundamentally what undercuts a lot of the movements, I think. I mean, this notion of like, you know, um, we can't include uh, these groups of people because they've, you know, they don't stand with us because they voted for Trump. I mean, that type of thinking is just so, I don't know, limited i think that like yeah um i would encourage viewers and listeners to like take what claire said <laughs> and think about um going beyond that binary thinking okay well uh yeah um thanks again and um so remember next week we had the episode with kenneth mejia and um that that 
title is What's Up with Running for Office? <laughs> so um, it will be on January next week um, on Monday, January 11th. Um, so check in then and have a great week. Take care. Thank you.